0: Tacos and tequila. This is our third episode. I am Peyton. I'm Sydney. And welcome back if you made yeah. it again. <laughs> welcome. Thanks for joining us again. Hopefully you're here still. <laughs> um, for our Michiganders, just like myself, we have a very interesting case that i had picked for us i actually just a little background was trying to find something kind of crazy and out there for a michigan case and i found a news article about this one and sent it to sydney and sydney was like yes (laughs) sydney was like wtf how did you find this she also asked me that this is true but it's, um, <laughs> it's an interesting and kind of wild case. We uh, haven't had a boring one yet.
1: <laughs> I'd like to
0: think not. <laughs> I, I think they've all been interesting. So I guess I will kind of dive right in here. So a lot of the information we got, I did some research googling and reading articles and stuff like that but most of the stuff I got I know Sydney I think you also we both actually watch this because we were texting about it um we did <laughs> Is a docu-series on Amazon Prime called Dead North so setting the scene it is October 2014 in the upper peninsula of Michigan for those of you that don't know Michigan, we have a lower peninsula and an upper peninsula, and the UP, as we like to call it, is a lot more. We'll say wild. <laughs> uh, it's definitely more national parks. It's I, you know, went to visit this past summer, and it's a lot of hiking and nature and outdoors, lots of forests, and. Lots of space in a between, lot of, sorry, was say no. lots of space in between, like, houses, and, you know, the towns are very small town feel. I think you had compared it to a lot of, like, parts of Wisconsin.
1: Yes, yes. A lot of people that are missing teeth. Um,
0: it's also... <laughs> meth, a- meth is a hell of a drug in the U.T. <laughs> we'll um, I was just say
1: that. Your location, though, is much closer to Wisconsin than you are to Michigan,
0: uh, you're in Michigan, but a lot closer to me than you are to you, Detroit. This is very true. So the most of our story takes place in the Iron River area. And for those of you who don't know, that is very close to the Wisconsin border in the UP, uh, a lot closer to Green Bay than Detroit. <laughs> so we looked it up on a map. So setting the scene, like I said, October 2014, Iron River in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. Carrie O'Donnell goes to the Iron River Police Department, police station, and reports her ex-boyfriend, 53-year-old Chris Reagan, missing. She's been unable to reach him for two weeks, and she actually speaks directly to the Chief of Police, Laura Frizzo. Just a heads up, Laura Frizzo will be a huge... Piece in this case. She is one of she is the main investigator. Now, as you can imagine, like a small town, probably not a lot of police staff. So she is very involved in this case. And definitely when I first started, I was like, ooh, ex-girlfriend going in there missing. Kind of a red flag, <laughs> but they're actually very close. They ended on good terms and they were still friends. They both cared about each other quite a bit, and stayed in touch up until October 14th, which is the last she had heard from Chris. They spoke about 6 a.m. Chris had told her he got a new job in North Carolina. He was really excited to move and start fresh. He had told her he had a drug test appointment the next day, October 15th, and she had never even heard back from him, so she didn't know how that went or anything. So finally, after two weeks, she went and reported him missing. She went into detail with everything with Chief of Police Laura Frizzo. She went with another police detective, actually, to Chris's apartment. Her parents were his landlords, so she actually had a set of keys for his uh, his apartment and was able to look around with this police officer. All his packing stuff was there. He had never even sent in the acceptance letter. It was still for the new job. It was still sitting there unsigned. And all this stuff that were very big red flags if he was supposed to be leaving to go to North Carolina. She had mentioned the, his car had been at a park and ride carpool center just north of Iron River. And she had seen it a couple times, it sounds like. So it made it seem like she had seen it a couple times since he went missing. Is that kind of what you got to, Sydney, that he had been there kind of the whole time and she knew that?
1: I got a lot of weird vibes from that because, like, in the beginning, I thought she was like, oh, they're still friends. She just is, like, checking up on him. And then when they there was the mention of, oh, yeah, actually, like, his car's at this parking ride, I was like, how do you know that?
0: Yeah, that seems what? really weird that she knew that and hadn't said anything sooner. She did seem very genuine. and She did. We will, but... we will later find out that Terry had nothing to do with it. So sorry to break that uh, super soon. But yeah, it was kind of suspicious in, in my mind.
1: Extremely suspicious. But it definitely, I mean, it was, I guess, small town, Michigan. Maybe, I guess I didn't check how close that park and ride actually was to their location, but what's the population of Iron River in Michigan? It can't be that big. No.
0: And I do think she said her subdivision that she lived in was right by it. So I think if she she was driving by, she would have seen it. Which it made it sound like she was pretty close to that. 2,800 people in 2019. So. That's like nothing. no. <laughs>
1: I'm I'm sure that she saw the car at the park and ride.
0: Oh, yeah. (laughs) So she brings that up. So after checking around Chris's apartment, they don't see him. They don't really see a sign of a struggle. It's just very disheveled, disorganized. He's packing. They decide to go to the park and ride. She did ask if she could go as well. The police sergeant that went with her. They actually, in the interview in the docuseries, said she genuinely seemed, like, extremely nervous, extremely worried, and she was kind of frantic. Like, she was expecting to find his dead body. So, she was pretty worried. So, they agreed that, okay, sure, if it'll ease your mind, you can come with us. They didn't go in the car right then and there, but they kind of checked it out and looked around. Wait, they did go in the car, right? I think, think yeah, I'm pretty sure they did.
1: Okay, she was was very disheveled about
0: that. Yeah, she Mm -hmm. was freaking out in case they would find their body there. So, his body in the trunk. Sorry, breaking the news. They did not find it, they didn't find him anywhere. (laughs) No blood, but they did see his knee brace in the car passenger seat, and I guess. Chris had recently had knee surgery and he wore that brace all the time. So it really didn't make sense that there would be a knee brace in his car and not on him and no Chris. The police department decides to, you know, further this investigation, pull his credit card statements, realize his last purchase was on October 14th, the day that Terry had said she last spoke to him around 4 p.m. for gas in Iron River. Police don't really know what to do. Michigan State Police are the next contact for the Iron River Police Department to reach out to. Three detectives got involved, and they started looking into Terry immediately. I think that makes sense. We all would. (laughs) She seemed to know a lot. And the Iron River Police Department didn't really suspect her. But they didn't suspect her just from her behaviors that first night she showed up. They just genuinely, like, she was terrified. She was really worried. So they really didn't think anything of it. So they decided to try to look down any other leads they could find. One of the first ones is one of Chris's neighbors is this man called, called <laughs> named Dale Vassar. And I guess he was a well-known criminal. Uh, to Iron River Police Department. So they originally brought him in to question him, see if he knew anything, knew anything shady about this. But he actually was out of state at the time, and they could prove that. So he was kind of written off pretty quickly. I really did
1: like the um, interview that they had with him, though, in the, the documentary. And he's just basically like, oh, that guy... Oh, yeah, I guess he wasn't <laughs> my neighbor, but I didn't know that guy. And I, I was dying. I was like, yeah, he definitely looks suspicious. And then they were just like, oh, he was out of state. And I was like, well, gosh darn it.
0: He did look suspicious. And he was like, oh, I don't know who that guy is. Well, come to find out he had, like, fixed his drywall or put up a wall or did something in that apartment yeah, had, like, for him when in he first his moved apartment. In. But I guess it was, like, when he had first moved in and they really hadn't talked much since. But still, if you wouldn't recognize your neighbor from across the hall in an apartment, it's not a big area. It's not a big town.
1: Men. Men suck. They don't know what's going on in life.
0: Literally. (laughs) Hate to offend everyone. We both are in serious relationships and live with our boyfriends. (laughs) So we know. They suck. Next up on their list of leads and I guess trying to drum up leads was going to talk to Chris's employer. They are called the Oldenburg group which was a Department of Defense contractor uh, they were like a
1: it was like, like a production uh,
0: line kind of but they had different things that they were building so there was you know a welding there was production line there was the electric electrical part components and stuff like that like, they have like multiple sections so they confirmed that chris's last day at work was the 14th he was scheduled to have off on the 15th and set to return the 16th and never did they did seem a little suspicious a lot of the people that he worked with knew that he was potentially leaving for north carolina about this job offer They thought it was a little weird, but were like, okay, maybe he just didn't give us two weeks, which he's, like, a manager. Like, he has a really good track record there, so I feel like that would be a little suspicious. But they let the police department know there were rumors of Chris seeing someone from work. Her name was Kelly Cochran, and she was a married woman. So immediately, that has police's interest. And they were like, okay, well, we need to go talk to the woman that he's supposedly seeing then. They go to talk to Kelly. And at first, they show up at her house. When the police show up there, they knock on the door. Her husband actually answers. His name's Jason Cochran. He isn't helpful. He's kind of rude and off-putting to the police officers. And they had asked if Kelly was home. He told her that she wa- them that she wasn't. And they would have to come back later or try to get a hold of her at work. All this stuff. And then here comes Kelly. <laughs> she just walks the front door. and She casually. was home the whole time. No big deal. So- she just, just casually comes out the
1: I, I also pictured it cuz i feel like they didn't have actual there wasn't actual footage of this it's like reenactments right and she was it was like i pictured her like walking underneath of his arm like hey oh yeah that's me how can i help you like just all casual like, right <laughs> either you need to <laughs> well follow up with your husband and be say, like yeah i'm she, not here
0: or that's what they said she when she came out she was super helpful she's really talkative and she just, like, had no problem talking to them at all. <laughs> so uh, they asked her about her missing co-worker. She's heard from him. She seems pretty concerned and seems extremely helpful. She does admit while her husband's standing there when they interview her, like, at her door and, like, in her house, that she was having an affair with Chris and that her husband was aware of it and he was okay with it. And he didn't say anything, didn't react. He just kind of stood there, according to the police officers. She seemed pretty upset, concerned about him missing. And she was actually worried about him leaving for North Carolina without saying goodbye. They were like, okay, this kind of seems a little fishy. This man's just like, okay, with his wife having this affair. He seemed really off-putting. And a jealous husband could always be like, a red flag for further investigation. So they decide to interview Kelly and Jason down at the station. Ask, you know, they just want to go into a little more detail and figure that all out. According to the detectives, Kelly talked a lot. She was open about her and Chris seeing each other for about four months or so. She claimed she didn't even know about the park and ride, never seen it before, never knew, wouldn't know why Chris's car would even be there. And she had actually said Chris and her were in love. And he had asked to move with him to like for her to move with him to North Carolina. She admitted her husband knew everything. They were separated. And then she's actually seeing other men. So besides Chris and her husband, she was seeing another man named Eric Erickson. Hell of a name. Real creative.
1: (laughs) The worst name.
0: (laughs) I saw that name and I was like. You've got to be kidding me right now.
1: <laughs> John Johnson, Eric oh, Erickson,
0: oh, literally. Your parents and, hate you. <laughs> they kind of go in comparison to Jason's interview, and it was like night and day. They said they sat down to interview Jason, and what I will say about the docu series, highly, highly recommend it. They have a lot of like police body cam footage. They have all the interview tapes. There's some weird stuff in there that I know Sydney and I will talk about in a little bit uh, (laughs) at the end. But, you know, so we actually see the interview footage from the first time they're interviewed. And Kelly was extremely open, really talkative, really genuinely trying to be helpful. Jason sits down to be interviewed and instantly starts, like, bawling his eyes out. (laughs) Literally. And, like, gives him an explanation, like... What
1: what did he say to about like anxiety and like I I'm talking to someone about this and then just starts bawling like yes, this is normal. Like this is not normal, sir. You have a lot of problems. There's something going on right now that's very well, serious. I <laughs>
0: won't we'll come to find out Jason does have a lot of mental problems. He admits he knows about the affair. Very opposite of what Kelly said. He is not happy about it. And he actually didn't know anything about Chris except his name. And that she was seeing him and that they worked together. He said that this is all his fault. That while they were living in Indiana previously, because that is where they're originally from. He was injured and couldn't walk or have sex for 18 months. Weird. And that their relationship went down the drain. Basically due to this, Kelly was either going to divorce him Or sleep around. And his exact words were he let her do her thing instead. Very weird. Jason had checked himself into a psych hospital. I heard two different things. In this point in the interview, he says 10-16, two days after Chris went missing. In another part, they say two days before Chris went missing. I'm not sure. I think it was after
1: yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking too, that it was after based on what I had come across. But I that was something that I found misleading information, like different information, like in news articles too. But I will
0: say we do know a lot about Jason's movements after Chris went missing. Mm-hmm. So I'm gonna guess it was before. We'll just say before. Two days before. Claimed he was suicidal but never homicidal. Um He was very depressed, had a lot of mental health issues, and was trying to get help for it. The police don't really get much from these interviews other than these minor red flags, but nothing useful, really. So they decide, okay, well, have some other conversations, see where we can go with this. So, one, they do talk to... Chris's son, Chris Reagan Jr., and kind of talked to him. He actually was planning on moving to North Carolina with his father. He is actually all packed and just hadn't heard from his dad and was getting really worried, really suspicious. He had actually... Uh, Once his lease was up or everything was moved out of his apartment, he actually drove up there and stayed up there for a while in Iron River to help clear everything out of his apartment and organize that and try to help while he could with the investigation. But he was just kind of spoke to the police chief at this point. So at this point, that's like, hey, first red flag, Chris Jr. is moving with him. So, why would Kelly say Chris had asked her to move? True.
1: Also, the relationship with um, Chris Jr. was, like, they were mending their relationship. They, like, had a very broken relationship and were just, like, getting back. So, why would you ask, like, your mistress, well, to be... Well, Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Opposite. Also,
0: it would be like a big red flag for the sons on the son's side too, because you're mending your relationship with your father, and he just like goes MIA on you. Mm -hmm. So they were like, okay, kind of a red flag here. So next up, they decide to talk to Eric Erickson, Kelly's other lover. (laughs) They said that. You know, one thing I'll say is kind of preface this. They said Eric definitely appeared kind of guilty, but he was very calm and he helped a lot. And I'll kind of get into some more about what he did. So he kind of didn't really think anything of Eric, but he had just moved back into town and started working at the Olden Group. So there was Chris as a manager in one department. Kelly worked in another department, and Eric worked in a third department. So they all didn't directly work together, is my understanding. But Chris was a manager. He had kind of heard a little bit about Kelly and Chris, but... He said that Kelly just really got to know him at work. He didn't really know a lot of people. He had been gone from town for a really long time. So she was super outgoing, spontaneous, adventurous. Thought she was a lot of fun. Started taking smoke breaks together and then lunches. And then they started going on at night here and there. He said she moved very fast. And <laughs> with a couple <laughs> weeks, they were met- meeting up for drinks and sleeping together. They first hooked up in September by a lake he actually wanted to show her something show her this area said it used to be somewhere he would go so he had her meet him at the park and ride just north of iron river and then drove her to this lake right down the road so again another lie we already see kelly kind of finding herself in Kelly would text Eric hot and heavy for days, then go MIA for days, and Eric was just kind of getting really fed up and kind of over it sometimes, but then she would just come right back, and he'd be like, okay, let's hang out. So he didn't even actually think her husband was even in the picture at all. He thought they were completely separated. They weren't together at all, let alone living together. And didn't know if her and Chris were still seeing each other or not. He ended up showing all of his texts with Kelly to the police detectives and agreed to a polygraph, which he passed. One of the things he had told them is that October 12th, so two days before Chris went missing, he had texted Kelly to meet up. And they actually had met at the park and ride that night and then went to the lake and hooked up. So then he's leaving the police station, and I thought this was really interesting, so I had to include it, is he's leaving and warns the police chief of Kelly's husband, Jason, who he had said had a lot of mental issues and was absolutely not stable based off the things that Kelly had told him and just the things he knew about him. And then said also, you know, be wary of Kelly because she cannot be trusted. They do a little bit of a digging and some other people at the Olden group, Oldenburg group, <laughs> to kind of figure out some more information about Chris and Chris and Kelly and Chris and Kelly and Eric and this weird love square, I guess. But it's one woman. I don't Square, it's rectangle. Like a square. There's four of them, but she's the only female. They're all connected to her. I don't know. So they Mm. talked to this guy, Art, (laughs) who worked with them. And he claims that everyone knew about Chris and Kelly. And actually said that he had overheard a fight with the two of them or, like, a disagreement. Because Chris was extremely upset. He was a very private person. And he really didn't want people at work knowing about the two of them. And so he thought Kelly was, like, out blabbing about it, which was very weird if you're a married woman, even if you're in a separated or open relationship.
1: That whole, their whole relation, her whole square relationship was bizarre. <laughs> like, very bizarre. Way too much. Everything that I know about people cheating on people is secretive, but... Kelly had don't
0: care at all she's telling everybody and some literally she want she did not care who who knew about this absolutely not actually before we dive into this I do have a little bit of information about Kelly and Jason and their relationships we were kind of talking about that that I thought was really interesting and wanted to kind of throw this in here so you'll find In the docuseries, it's not really like a, you don't find out their background information right away. You kind of find it out a little later. But since we were talking about their weird dynamic, I thought it was going to be important. They actually grew up together next door neighbors in Indiana. Kelly's mom, when she was interviewed in the docuseries, had actually said it was really interesting that they even got together. She didn't really think Jason think of Jason like that he was just the boy next door she said he was always a good kid but he definitely had his own issues and Kelly was a bit of a troubled teenager running away rebelling acting out she actually was put in a girl's home which I thought was really interesting so she definitely had to have like been bad
1: yeah she definitely did some things for sure (laughs) because how do you end up in a girl's home without being a bad seed
0: like, you have to, your parents absolutely cannot put up with you. You have to be bad at that point. They actually started dating when Kelly was still in high school. Jason was a little older. And as soon as they got out of high school, they actually got married and lived most of their lives in Indiana until they literally just up and moved to the UP of Michigan in February 2014. Uh, it seemed pretty sudden. And it was in the middle of winter. And if you know anything about the northern states, I'll tell you this about the northern Michigan and Wisconsin parts. It's like what you think of in Canada in the winter. That's what you see there. <laughs> it's lots of snow, cold. So very strange. But they just kind of I up had, um, out.
1: I actually read on, I think it was like, the Oxygen page, because there's a Snapped episode on, Ooh. Uh, like, about this whole thing. Um, and it one of the explanations that they gave for them moving to Michigan was because Jason wanted to get a medical marijuana card.
0: Okay, well, Michigan was the place to do it. <laughs> yeah. Fun fact, it's actually completely legalized if you're the age of 21 or up in the state of Michigan now, so... Woohoo! <laughs> Woo! <laughs> at this point in time it's getting late in the year you know it's November at this point police are really trying to do what they can because pretty soon it's going to be a lot of snow on the ground like I said you can't really search at that point if anyone's missing and like I had said there was a lot of woods area you know a lot of concern was if Chris had just kind of wandered into place and got lost or anything like that. They do get lost hunters or fishermen and stuff like that calls sometimes. So they weren't really sure, but they were like, okay, we have to try and do a search of this woods area and around the parking ride if they can, before it starts snowing. Michigan state police lent human bodies and dogs (laughs) to search the grounds said even like the military came in that's another thing about upper peninsula there's a lot of department of defense contractors there's a lot of army bases up there and so it's a great place for manufacturing for like department of defense contractors so there's a lot of military up there so military came in from one of the bases nearby is my understanding and helped actually do an aerial search with helicopters to see if they could find anything But this search did nothing. I guess that's kind of it until we fast forward there until March of 2015. March 15, 2015, police finally have enough evidence to do a search on Kelly and Jason's home. They go to serve the search warrant. State, State police is there and actually a pair of private detectives that Chief Rizzo, Rizzo, <laughs> Frizzo, <laughs> Chief Rizzo had kind of reached out to and, and got help with for this investigation. They are pretty understaffed, and it seemed like, budget-wise, there were a lot of issues on her working on this case so much. She
1: they, had a lot of problems.
0: There were a lot of problems. You'll... If you watch a docu-series, you see a lot about, like, the politics in Iron River. And, like, that was a lot of stuff that I wasn't super interested in at the time. It was just more of, like, issues with the budgeting and stuff like that. But so anyways, there's a pair of private detectives who they actually help do a search of their home. They end up searching for 12 hours. And this whole time, Kelly and Jason actually went to their neighbor's house across the street. What they find at the house, some interesting things. Nothing super outright saying they're guilty. But they found a mass amount of weapons. They even said, like, we're in the Upper Peninsula. There's a lot of weapons up here. But, like, this is a lot. (laughs) So they found swords, a loaded .22 handgun in the living room. I think they found at least one other shotgun in the house and tons Mm -hmm. of knives, (laughs) like a lot of swords and knives and other various weapons. They had like a hammer in one spot where a hammer wouldn't sit. They had a bat right by the front door, like a bunch of just random stuff. And then they actually found blood spatter on the ceiling with luminol. But it was actually painted over. So they couldn't really tell. But the luminol lit it all up. And they couldn't really convict anything or arrest them immediately. And they were just hoping that maybe the sample could get something off the ceiling. The next morning, Kelly and Jason are gone. They have left Iron River. They're like, peace the fuck out. We're getting out of here
1: it's nice to know y'all but we gotta go
0: they were they were ready to book it so police are like well this is definitely suspicious so they brought in the neighbors that they were chilling at their house for 12 hours (laughs) during the search warrant happened and kind of talked to them so one thing they said is that during the search jason who was like he was quiet until you got to know him, they said. Then he was pretty chatty and talkative. They've known him for a little bit. They kind of got buddy-buddy. They actually said, <laughs> the one neighbor said, him and Jason became friends because they would smoke weed together. Maybe that med card thing is pretty true.
1: <laughs> it's gotta be. Um,
0: it's gotta be. But Jason was pretty silent. He, they said he looked scared and he was like beat red like the whole time. But Kelly was, like, nonstop talking, freaking out, asking, like, what they could potentially find. (laughs) The one guy they interviewed, I loved it because he was like, oh, I told them. If you went through everything, like, they're going to go over this with the fine-tuned comb. I can't speak. (laughs) Fine-toothed comb. So if you think you got rid of something, it's there. And it's coming back. Out. Yeah, and she was like freaking out. <laughs> so they were like, hmm, interesting. So then they talk to these neighbors and are asking about any suspicious activity around the time of Chris's disappearance. And we got a hell of a story, didn't we, Sydney?
1: This is like the best thing of the whole series, okay?
0: <laughs> it really is. They find out the night. Chris had disappeared. Grandma, who lives across the street, they all kind of hang out and live, I guess, kind of at Grandma's house. She woke up to the sound of a gunshot. She looked at the window, couldn't see where it came from. There's, like, a tree in the way and stuff like that. Kind of thought it might be from Kelly and Jason's house. Couldn't tell. She heard some door slams, and she sees two people outside kind of arguing. She can tell one's man, one's a woman, can't really make anything out. And then she sees two cars leave. Then they say, <laughs> the next few days, around two, three in the morning, middle of the night, they start hearing loud power tools. They heard sanding tools, reciprocating saws. They know these sounds. They know what it sounds like. <laughs> and they couldn't figure it out. <laughs>
1: He also, like, he just casually mentioned, like, yeah, they're just, like, remodeling their home in the middle of the night.
0: Yeah, they were like, (laughs) what the heck are they doing? But didn't say anything to them.
1: Yes. That would be like, are you fucking kidding me right now? I am your neighbor, and I need to sleep at night? And you are the worst. I thought we were friends. Just, like, going in on them.
0: Yeah, I would have been pissed. They ended up actually finding another neighbor who said, you know, probably within, like, a week of that they actually had this huge like started having a lot of fires and bonfires I guess and he had walked up because he said it smelled real bad the whole neighborhood started sinking and this other neighbor who lived down the street had walked up <laughs> and was like what are you burning like what is going on here and they had claimed it was brush. And the neighbor's like, listen, I've lived here my entire life. Brush does not smell like that. But he, I love him. He goes, if you want, we can call the police and see what they say about it. And they were like, oh, no, it's fine. We'll put it out. But then homeboy doesn't call the police anyways.
1: <laughs> Literally. Like, why didn't you call the police and see if they thought it smelled like brush?
0: Come on. <laughs> yep. So they just kind of let that be. They said, the neighbors from across the street said, after the power tool sounds ended after a few days. And then Kelly and Jason actually invited them over to a barbecue. They said it was a little weird because it was, like, the first time they had ever really done that. And they had hung out a couple times, or some of them maybe, like, drank here and there. But they thought it was interesting. Said that it was also the last time. It had never happened again since then. <laughs> and this is like, months later. You got to think that was... October, it's at least middle of March now Mm -hmm. and said that it was so much meat that they brought out for this barbecue. Guy said it could have easily cost $150 $200 worth of meat. Jason claims that back in Indiana he was a butcher of exotic animals. (laughs) Um Okay, well, neighbors claim they don't know what it was, but they knew it was not beef.
1: That is for sure. It was exotic.
0: It was very exotic. Um, it did not look like beef, and they said it did not taste like
1: beef. <laughs> did it He made a comment too I thought that made it sound like it was like, um, man, I feel like I'm gonna mess this word up like iridescent or whatever, where it's like see-through. Yes. He like, said it is that the right word?
0: Transparent. It was transparent
1: right <laughs> Yes, that's the word I was looking for.
0: Iridescent works. That's a good word. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they said it was pretty uh, iridescent, transparent. Sounded like it was a little tougher than beef. Mm-hmm. So, like, Jason's like, oh, yeah, no problem. Like, we used to, I used to cook this kind of stuff all the time. Okay, well, two weeks after the search of the home, they got the lab results and confirmed it was blood in the house, for sure. But they couldn't confirm if it was human or animal or what. Uh, The paint that had been painted over, it was pretty degraded. They kind of wanted to do a second sweep of the home just in case they had missed anything. They go in the basement and find some writings and journals and poems of Jason's. uh, Some of them in the mental hospital writings literally days before Chris's murder talking about an unwelcome guest. Nothing yet though, nothing solid. And the lab really wants to do comparison samples to try and see if they can pinpoint some DNA. So Chris Reagan Jr. gives his DNA to kind of you know, be in comparison for his dad's, and they want to get Kelly and Jason's, but they are gone, and they have no idea where they are. Come to find out. Chief Frizzo learns her pair of private detectives had actually put a tracker on Chris and Kelly's car. and they're in their hometown of Maryville, Indiana right now. So, Frizzell reaches out to the Lake County Sheriff Department, which is the county of that Maryville resides in, to serve a search warrant for the DNA for Chris and Kelly. To, you know, for evidence to compare everything, they agree. they helped get a signed affidavit by the judge in Indiana because you can't serve a DNA evidence warrant. In Indiana for Michigan. Interesting. (laughs) So, my favorite part about all of this is that when they serve those warrants and bring Kelly and Jason down to the police station in Indiana, Chief Rizzo actually drives down there and shows up herself to be there and greet them. And She walks in that room. My favorite part was seeing that interview clip. When she walks in that room and seeing Jason's face when she walks in. She's a badass bitch. She really is. She was like, oh, I'm going to be there. Yeah, for sure. So instantly she tries to get him to flip on Kelly. And he won't do it. He instantly lures up, refuses to talk to her anymore. So, they had actually picked up Jason before they had picked up Kelly, is my understanding. Kelly's trying to call him the whole time. He's in the interview room sitting there. He's talking to Chief Frizzo. He was in there for a little bit. So, then after they're done with him, they bring Kelly into a different interview room. And Chief Frizzo walks in and knew that Kelly had been trying to call him. And so she kind of tries to confront her on all her lies. She gives her her text conversations. Proof that Jason wasn't okay with her having these affairs. They had all these crazy text messages. where He's begging her to leave Chris and come home. He, they, She knows about the parking ride. She wasn't moving to North Carolina. And Kelly lawyers up and refuses to talk. When she is leaving the room, Kelly asks her, where her husband is and Chief Rizzo just turns around looks at her locks eyes with her and goes to turn around and Kelly without saying anything and Kelly goes yep i figured that and we watched that interview clip what did you think she looked like when you when she she said that psychotic oh yeah she was livid <laughs>
1: like Literally live it. Are you fucking kidding me right now? That's gonna be your response. <laughs> but it was like split second didn't response. Say any,
0: yeah, Chief Prince didn't even second. say anything. She just kind of looked at her and looked back without saying anything, and instantly, yep, I figured that. I was like, okay. Fast forward now. We're gonna fast forward a couple months. Spring of twenty fifteen. They do a search of the Caspian pit behind the Cochrane home. It's basically own old mining pits, which anyone that knows anything about Michigan or upper peninsula, probably us Michiganders know that there's a lot of old school mines. It's how iron river and iron mountain cities up there got their names for iron in the mountains and the everything like that. So there were a bunch of mines that were filled in with water. So that's what the Caspian Pit is. I guess Jason used to walk around there a lot. And people were very known in the area to just jump all their weapons and other various things involved in crimes in the Caspian Pit. They're never really successful in recovering anything. That was also
1: like in Jason and Kelly's like old backyard too. Cause weren't they in like the. They were in, like, a neighboring town. I didn't think that they were in Iron River.
0: No, I think they live, like, right next to Iron River. Okay. So, the Cassian Pit is, yeah, like, right in their, I guess, backyard almost. They said it was, like, 600 yards or something like that from their Mm -hmm. home behind their neighborhood. So, they send a diver in, notices a barrel attached cinder blocks with a clothesline to it. So, they're like, what the heck is this? Pull it out. It's a burn barrel. They can actually prove it was from Kelly and Jason's home, but nothing's find in, found inside. They also do a search of Kelly and Jason's house on the outside now that spring has come, snow and ice have thawed, find the fire pit there. They take the remnants to the lab for further research. A bunch of ash there. So they find pieces of one pair of jeans, a blade from a reciprocating saw. But no real hard evidence. I guess, you know, snow and ice melt. It's been a while. You're not really going to find much at that point. True. (laughs) Kind of nothing goes on at that point. Spring of 2015, they don't really have anything else. And we're going to fast forward. (laughs) February 2016, 16 months since Chris went missing, a 911 call comes into the Lake County Sheriff Department. A woman says her husband isn't breathing. His face is blue and it looks like he had been sick. She sounds panicky. EMS shows up. Jason is pronounced dead on the scene. Just kind of looking around, it appears to be a possible overdose. Big turn of events. <laughs> so, a local homicide detective is now assigned Jason's case and try to ensure it was not murder. Detective Jeremy Ogden from the Hobart Police Department actually reaches out to Chief Frizzo to get info on her investigation on Jason and Kelly. Kind of reads over all her notes, watches the video footage. Tries to dig a little deeper just to really ensure that there was no homicide and it was a true suicide. Kind of looks over the medics reports and there's like a few really big red flags, including the fact that when they got on the scene, Kelly is not cooperating. She's getting in their way. She's asking a lot of questions. She's really hindering them trying to help potentially save Jason. So he's like, huh, interesting.
1: That, I think, it's one thing to be, like, completely hysterical in a situation like that. But it was a whole other thing when, like, he's blue and you're making your way so no one else can get in the way. Like, no one can save him. There's no hope for him at that point.
0: Blocking the doorways. Yeah. What are you going to do at that point that you look... Shady. Extremely shady. So, Detective Ogden goes to pathologist to explain the situation, explains the circumstances around everything, and just wants to ensure that they're really digging deep into this and that it's not just an overdose. They do confirm that there's lots of heroin in his system. And they also notice there are signs of petechial hemorrh- hemorrhaging, which is... Like a big number one sign of strangulation. There was actually so much pressure on his face at one point in time that his sinuses were collapsed. That's like a lot of pressure. Seriously. (laughs) So it's very much ruled as a homicide. And cause of death was asphyxiation due to strangulation. Detective Ogden decides to try to interview Kelly, and before the coroner's report is released, so he can kind of get some information out of her before she knows how it's ruled. He starts with asking her about the night Jason died. Says that claim, you know, she claims to smoked a few joints. She fell asleep around three three thirty and wakes up. She doesn't really hear him snoring. Then she thought he was kind of awake. She says his name. He doesn't say anything. She starts freaking out, yelling him. Claims she slapped him. Thinks that she could have slapped him hard enough to hurt him, maybe. Then Detective Ogden tries to bring up Chris, Reagan, and she just stops talking. So there ends that interview. (laughs) The
1: interviews with um, Detective Ogden, though, were... Really great because he definitely was like pulling on her heartstrings. He's like holding her hand, like please tell me more about this.
0: Oh yeah, We're, Chief Frizzle was like accusatory the whole time, and he mm-hmm. was there for her. Mm-hmm. Next turn of events is that this man, <laughs> random man, Walt Ammerman. Contacts the FBI after Jason's death and actually comes forward, says he was a gaming friend online of Jason's. He didn't really like Kelly. He kind of knew some weird stuff about their relationship, had suspected her involvement, and he wanted to help, see if he could do anything. Him and Jason were pretty close. He agrees to become a confidential informant. Walt... While sitting there with Detective Ogden, Charles Kelly lets her know that Jason had mailed a letter to him prior to his death. He says that the note, there's like a couple letters in there. There's a note inside that says, if something happens to me, send this letter to the Iron River Police Department after my death claims it's been bugging him he's had it for a couple, like a month now and he just wanted to give her a heads up before he sends it in cindy do you remember in the recording what kelly said in response
1: not directly but it was like the oh shit moment and i also she, like at the big the beginning of that conversation she's like kind of shrugs him off and she's like can i call you back and he's like yeah, yeah she like didn't no. want to talk
0: to him and he was like i got something to tell you lady <laughs> She, when he tells her this, she, like, sighs. It's, like, audible, like, please don't. (laughs) That's all she says in regards to sending the letter. So they're like, oh, shit, this bitch knows something. (laughs) For sure. And so this ploy... works (laughs) works <laughs> because your man that you just said was pulling on her heartstrings detective Ogden gets a phone call from her she reaches out she's freaking out she wants his help she goes in talks to him tells him her side of the details of what happens with Chris and confesses she says Jason shot and killed him point blank that's what she says yep so I have some details of kind of what she said to him. She had invited Chris over, didn't realize Jason was in the house. And when Chris gets to the house, they kind of started making out, messing around right when they walk in. And so kind of a layout in the house. The door that he had walked into was the back door. There You can take like either this, it's like a landing when you walk in. The stairs on the left go to the basement, and then there's a couple steps up on the right that go into the house and, like, the living room area. I guess kitchen. I don't know. But (laughs) they were on the landing, and she said that Chris had started walking up the stairs to the right into, like, the rest of the house, and that Jason comes up from out of the basement and shoots past Kelly – hits Chris in the head <laughs> How is that even possible? I don't understand that.
1: You got to have it's, a really good shot.
0: It's not possible. It's not.
1: <laughs> not in this the amount of space to like in that they show. They show like actual footage from this space.
0: It's like a pretty small area. Yeah, and it's not like wide enough that they were standing next to each other. If he started mm-hmm. walking up those stairs, He's walking up first. She's right behind him. And Jason's coming from even lower of a point.
1: She had to be either turned. Like she walked down the stairs. Like towards the basement. Or like wasn't even fully in the house yet. To like avoid that.
0: Correct. She confirms. That they did actually cut up Chris. And dismember him. I just want to preface this with. We don't find out if they actually served Chris to the neighbors as barbecue. We don't ever know. But it is Which totally really really Which
1: really hurts. I feel like that was one unanswered question that needed to be answered. How can you just leave with the, oh yeah, it might have been, but why didn't they ask her that?
0: I have no idea. And if they did ask her, we never find out if she even denies it. They don't even mention no. it. No. So, But she does confirm they cut up Chris, dismembered him, and they actually put small pieces, depending on the body part, in black, large garbage bags and disposed of it throughout the woods. She says Jason forced her to clean up everything while he worked on cutting him up into pieces. So at this point, Detective Ogden's like, all right, let's go. And persuades Kelly to drive up with him to the UP. Six hours. It's my Uh, favorite part. Yeah, he's just like, cool, let's go.
1: And it's like in the middle of the night, too. It's like two o'clock in the morning. He's like, "All right, we're going. Get in the car. Yeah,
0: he says they get there at like dawn. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And he wants to try and help locate parts of Chris. Drives up to a county road, and she points to a trail where they dump parts of Chris's body, but they couldn't find anything around there. So then they go to the house for her to reenact the whole thing to the officers and try to, on video, and explain what happened. And then they're like, cool, let's go back to Indiana. Like, okay. So they go back to Indiana. Kelly was set to do a polygraph the next day. And guess who, yet again, doesn't show up? (laughs) She has fled. They do a emergency locate on her GPS on her phone. Chief Ogden keeps texting her updates here and there every few days. She know He's kind of playing with her, like knows that she'll turn her phone on here and there to talk to him because she had been super friendly with him, really felt comfortable with him. So they actually pin her down in Western Kentucky. Police go there, arrest her with no incident. And police Ogden goes back. Goes down there to pick her up with his partner. And lo and behold. Kelly decides to talk. Says 14 years prior. When her and Jason. Got married. They had made a pact. That if any of them were to have an affair. They're going to kill off their lovers. Absolutely
1: bizarre.
0: (laughs) Bizarre. What actually happens. We find out. Or what actually had happened with Chris. Is that Kelly was supposed to kill him herself. But she claimed she couldn't because she loved him. (laughs) She loved him so much that when Chris showed up and went to the front door. She told him to go to the back where she knew where Jason was hiding. And she let him in the back door for Jason to shoot him. So had a lot more involvement than she first tried to claim. Fast forward, may twenty sixteen, back in Iron River, she agrees to try to help locate Chris. They bring her down with the police officers. Um they found a couple they found a bag in one of the spots, and it's c- empty. It's clearly clearly been shredded by animals. Chief Frizzo, this is my favorite part about this docu series is during this. Chief Frizzo's talking to her. And she's got her body cam footage of, like, while they're doing that search. And she's kind of talking to her while she's standing there and the dogs are searching around. And Kelly basically claims, like, she got a high from the sight of all the blood. And she goes, <laughs> Chief Frizzo had asked her when she had said something about all the blood. Oh, yeah, how did you feel seeing it all? You enjoyed it, didn't you? She goes, yeah, high from seeing it. And I ain't no vampire or nothing but tasting it my favorite quote
1: it just it just kept getting more and more weird like we went from serving people at a barbecue to now we're vampires like what other weird comments can you make
0: what else can come up here literally it gets very strange while the some of the dogs were looking chief rozzo had kind of decided to keep looking because they couldn't really find anything in that area. And her and one of the dog handlers kind of keep searching, find a clearing not far from that area. And the dog like picks up a scent and they finally found Chris's skull. Kelly takes them, points them to the exact spot in the Caspian pit where she got rid of the gun and threw it. And they're actually able to locate it and retrieve it from her directions. And they took them to the house And pointed out the forceps in the kitchen that she actually used to try and get the bullet out of Chris's skull. She had never cleaned them. And she claimed that she didn't even think Jason really deep cleaned them. And they actually could positively identify Chris's DNA on the forceps. So, you know, sounds just about like a done case at this point, right?
1: Yes, and they were just casually like on the kitchen counter in the yeah. the footage that they showed. It was literally just, oh yeah, they're just right here. They they were here the
0: whole time. Like what? Well, we're not quite done yet, folks, and I know this is a long one, so just bear with us. Kelly goes to court and she tries to plead not guilty in the murder of Chris Reagan. And claims that it was all Jason's fault. She was scared for her life. And that's why she did all of that. Fun fact. She is still found guilty. She actually makes a plea deal as well. On the murder of her husband. Claims she suffocated him after injecting him with heroin. And her reasoning behind it is that he took the only good thing from her. By actually killing Chris. At this point. The plea deal, actually, sorry, I'm just going to include this. The plea deal is actually for her to serve 65 years for Jason's murder consecutively with her life sentence for Chris's murder. I still don't think she ever has a chance of parole. But that was very interesting that she made that deal so she could just serve it concurrently. At this point... They're like, okay, this is all wrapped up to sur- solve murders. Well, then Kelly's own brother, Colton Gaboyan, comes forward and talks to one of the police detectives. And he basically says, like, listen, I think there's more. He said she admitted to Jason in front of her brother once that she met a guy on Facebook hook and hooked up with him. And Jason just flat out looked at her and said, "Okay, want me to kill him?"
1: What? Just bizarre.
0: He says and claims that Kelly told him that there was a total of nine victims between her and Jason. Mind blowing. (laughs) They try to do some more digging find any more information on any of these other potential victims Detective Ogden calls her frequently or talks to her she admits to Detective Ogden in one of the recorded calls you know she has and in air quotes friends in Indiana, Michigan Tennessee and Minnesota so that means to them that they think that there are more bodies in these other states I was just going to say I feel like
1: that was another thing that was left just unanswered. I mean, I guess it's still pretty fresh, but why are we looking deeper into that? Why aren't you offering her, like, cut some time if you tell us a little bit more or or digging deeper?
0: Yeah, well, I couldn't really find much else on this. I did try to do some research on other potential victims Fun fact, Chief Frizzo is no longer with the Iron River Police Department. (laughs) She worked for, like, a third-party company out of Indiana. (laughs) You want to tell the people why, Sydney?
1: Because the docuseries gave us a little tidbit that uh, her and Detective (laughs) Ogden himself are actually in love and engaged to be married
0: bizarre yeah (laughs) I asked Sydney if she wanted to tell that because when we were watching this she was like I'm very confused why this is included in the series." and it was like
1: it was like a big they were like walking on the beach together
0: yeah it was like a very big part in the fourth episode like I get it but at the same time like I don't get it
1: that did not need to be included at all (laughs)
0: Basically, from what I gathered in other news articles, is that Kelly still actually occasionally writes Chief Rizzo and claims her to her that there are other victims and doesn't she want to know. But from everything I've heard, she really isn't giving anything up. It's just her teasing them and messing with them. And she hasn't given anything of substantial evidence. They can't tell if she's really just talking to talk or she's ready to confess.
1: It's also interesting that she's uh, sending letters to Chief Frizzo of the two.
0: Yeah, I think she's reached out to Detective Ogden, too.
1: Maybe she knows that they live at the same address now.
0: Maybe.
1: (laughs) I mean, it's just easier. Same stamp. (laughs) Write it to both of them.
0: Address it to both of them. Stupid. Yeah, it's very widely believed that with how well they dismembered and covered up their mess with Chris that they he was probably not their first victim.
1: No. That has to be something you uh tried a time or two or did
0: some research on. You know, and I think this is a really interesting part too. They tried to kind of set Kelly up to see if she'd confess. And they recorded a call with her mother while she was in prison and her mom confronted her about the other victims. She doesn't deny anything. Her mom straight up says, you know, I didn't know there were other victims. Like, why are you like this? Like, what went wrong? (laughs) And Kelly goes, I've always been like this. There's no helping. I've already tried. Definitely sounds like there might be more potential victims. She was convicted, I think, in 2017. So, I mean, at this point, it's been four years and we haven't really heard anything. Mm Mm-mm. Now, they do say that Kelly has an obsession with butterflies. (laughs) There were a lot of butterfly paintings and pictures throughout the house. And she has 14 butterfly tattoos on her body. She claims that they're all symbols for a person she has lost. So they also are curious if she potentially could have up to 14 victims at that point. So instead
1: of having, like, tear-drop tattoos, she has butterfly tattoos?
0: You know, everyone has their own thing. <laughs> I don't know. It seems pretty wild. Oh, extremely. I highly recommend the Dead North docuseries.
1: Yes. And especially, like, so, I mean, you sent me the one article on it. And I kind of, like, briefly skimmed it and was like, alright, this is gonna work. But... I didn't do, like, any research at that initial point. It was more watching the documentary. Like, oh, shit, this is crazy.
0: Yeah, and, you know, the first episode or two... Because there's four episodes. The first episode or two, it's kind of like, okay, it's your basic beginning. By the third and fourth episode, you're like, what the fuck is going on? Yes. I think the
1: fourth fourth (laughs) episode... Why is there so much politics at this police department? Why are Detective Ogden and and Chief Frizzle together? Why is (laughs) Kelly doing this? I'm so confused. I have so many questions.
0: And we never find out if she served her ex-lovers barbecue to everyone. No! Doesn't that mean, like, her and Jason also ate him? Because they ate at that barbecue, too.
1: Yeah. Maybe that's some weird fetish, too.
0: I don't know. It's really mind-blowing. I had never heard this story before. It's not that long ago. And as a Michigan resident, I was like, yes, I need to cover this.
1: (laughs) I was also pretty interested about that because just, like, how close it was, like, is to Wisconsin. And not hearing anything. Yeah. uh, It's not far from either of us. Doesn't seem like it's a highly uh, publicized case, which is really interesting. But then... Even the documentary too, like it didn't seem like that got as much attention as it could have.
0: Yeah, I didn't even know that thing existed. No. no mm-mm. Um. Well, anything else you want to add? Anything else crazy? No. Not at this point. Okay. Well. Before, I have a joke for you. I was gonna say before we wrap, but you want to <laughs> tell us our joke of the week?
1: So this one isn't um the greatest,
0: I have to say. But it's okay, I'm here for it.
1: So usually my rule for drinking is one and done, but with tequila, it's one and done.
0: <laughs> Thank you for putting the emphasis on it. <laughs> it had to, otherwise you just <laughs> wouldn't get it. <laughs> I probably wouldn't have done it successfully the first time. (laughs) Man. Well, you're obviously sticking around for the dad jokes at the end if you listened to the last episode and you're still here.
1: If you're not staying for the dad jokes, I'm disappointed in you.
0: Big (laughs) facts. Well, thanks, everyone. Um... We have Facebook and Instagram names for you to like and follow. Our we Instagram, do. do you know it off the top of your head? At sign tacos and
1: tequila. T E K I L L Y A.
0: Perfect. And then Facebook, we are tacos and T TKILLYA podcast not all one word they're their own words and it's T-E-K-I-L-L-Y-A and you can officially like and follow us and subscribe on Spotify hopefully by the time this is up we will be live on Apple Podcasts as well fingers crossed well Thanks for sticking around. And I guess we'll be seeing you next week, all, with uh, another doozy of a case, because that's how we like it. All the doozies. <laughs> all right. Bye. Bye. Woo <laughs> ha